listening to the Jelly Donut Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I talk to the best and brightest in finance and economics. We'll go beyond just theory and discuss some of the most important real-world macro questions of our time. What happens next and how does all of this end? Pull up a seat and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Welcome our newest sponsor, Baron Fig. Whether you need pens, notebooks, or bags, they have you covered. Baron Fig makes tools for thinking, and they'll help you do your best thinking at home, work, and in between. And if you're a podcast fan, the small little notebooks they have are great for taking notes to refer back to later. I've been using their products now for, gosh, over five years, and I love the craftsmanship and attention to detail. So if you like the podcast, Show your support to Baronfig. Go to baronfig.com and use our code JDP10. That's JDP10, and you'll get 10% off your first purchase. So go check it out right now while you're thinking about it. Today's show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they specialize in single origin coffees. They're committed to long term sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I like to start off with usually one or two cups. I make it by hand at home with a pour over, but it doesn't matter how you make it. You could be using a Mr. Coffee machine. It doesn't matter, but what does matter is the beans. You have to start with really high quality beans and you'll always make sure you have a great cup. So just say no to those burnt, over-roasted corporate coffee beans that you find at a grocery store and upgrade your coffee game I'm going to make it real easy for you. Here's what you do. Just go to covacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A, coffee.com, and use our code JDP10. That's JDP10, and you get $5 off your first purchase. Do it right now while you're thinking about it. You'll be happy you did. Today in the show, we have Thomas Saving. Thomas is director of the Private Enterprise Research Center and University Distinguished Professor of Economics at Texas A&M University. Prior to joining the economics faculty in 1968, he was on the faculty at the University of Washington in Seattle and Michigan State University. His early research focuses on monetary theory and policy, and he earned a PhD from the University of Chicago in 1960. Enjoy my conversation with Thomas Saving. Thomas, welcome to the podcast. All right. Glad to be here. It's the first one I've ever done. We'll see whether I like it. (laughs) Well, great having you. So the first question we like to ask guests is going back to 2008, global financial crisis. What what were you doing during that time? What was going through your mind? Well, at the time, I would have to say it's before, of course, I started to write this book. So uh, although, as you know from my resume, I've done uh, a great many things in monetary economics before that. But at the time, actually, I was a public trustee of the Social Security and Medicare trust funds and spending a huge amount of time in Washington trying to straighten out Social Security and Medicare. Okay, interesting. And 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 what was going through your mind during some of the 2008 um bailouts and things there was seems like we were just a weekend away from some of the atms not working and obviously the build-up was more on the uh, balance sheets of some of the banks and even the shadow banking system but how would how are you looking at things uh back then compared to some of the debt build-up that we have now well those things are in fact somewhat very similar as you know as we talk about the book for a minute in the very beginning of the federal reserve it really started with financial crises, because these were not unheard of. I mean, the financial crises were going on every several years. Uh, and the issue and the main part, if you look at the, the Federal Reserve Act, it talks about uh, a, making the, the currency liquid. And what they meant by that was we have to have a system where 
when everyone decides they want currency instead of deposits, we have to be able to convert deposits to currency. And, and that seems simple enough, but of course it, uh, it wasn't simple. And that was the idea of the bill. That's the whole idea. And that what, that, that's exactly what 2008 was about. And that's what the current situation is about exactly. It's about our ability to flood the market with liquidity. And it's an old idea, came all the way from the old Bank of England and a person named Walter Badgett. And the notion was when you have a liquidity crisis, you flood the market with liquidity. And that's what couldn't happen in financial crises before the Federal Reserve. And that does not mean that it happened every time the Federal Reserve had that opportunity. But certainly in 2008 and in this episode, uh, the, that's happening. And there were certainly other uh, episodes. I mean, one of those before 2008 would have been Y2K. If you remember Y2K, everyone was afraid that because when a lot of the programs, computer programs were written, memory was very expensive. And so they would have only mm-hmm. allowed two digits for the, for the year. Mm-hmm. And, and they wouldn't have allowed a number bigger than 99. So what was going to happen when you got to 2000? And the fear was that all these financials, that the ATMs would shut down, your car would stop running because mm-hmm. all the electronics would know what 2000, hey, that, that, that's not an allowable number. And so you'll see what the Federal Reserve did. They had the same kind of things they're doing now they did in 2008. They, they flooded the market with liquidity. And when, 2000, when that didn't happen, then they could take everything back. And that's what they did. They took everything back. The next episode would have been just after that, you know, a year and three quarters after that, 9-11. 9-11 came along, 2001, and financial markets were in total disarray. No one knew whether this was going to be a war starting or whether this was a one-time event. What was going to happen because all those financial things were in the World Trade Center, financial markets went crazy. What did the Federal Reserve do? They flooded the market with liquidity. And once it was apparent that this was a one-time event, they could take all that away. Now, of course, 2008 was a different kind of a situation because it was not a, an event that was going to be over in a month or two. Uh, it was an event that, uh, well, of course, housing prices started to fall at least a year and a half or two years before September 2008. And that was an issue that anyone who recognized uh, uh, what was happening to housing prices and the way people were uh, no assets, no income, uh, you, you had what you had was a little bit of an, what we, we refer to in economics as an agency problem. That is, you have an agent who's initiating new mortgages and you're paying them up front to do it. Now, they have every incentive to get people to lie about their income and assets because they're going to get paid immediately. And when and of course, as long as housing prices are going up 10 percent a year, as they were, that's not a problem for the for the buyers. But once they started falling you aren't going to be able to pay your mortgage. You're just going to walk the mortgage. And what that's exactly what happened. And then uh, mortgage-backed securities, uh, uh, that, that was the initial financial disaster. Of course, the, uh, the near banks, if we want to call them that, Lehman Brothers and, uh, uh, and uh, Bear Stearns and those people uh, had a lot of overnight borrowing they were doing, and that caused Lehman Brothers to go down. And a lot of people argue that the Fed should not have allowed that to happen. They certainly didn't let it happen to Bear Stearns or to Merrill Lynch or any of those people. Right. And going back to 2008, um, the Fed's balance sheet was growing organically as the Fed conducted open market operations. It was around $800 billion before the crisis hit. And then after uh, you know they injected that 
a huge amount of liquidity, which a lot of people agreed with at the time just to keep uh, markets functioning. Uh, the balance sheet grew all the way to four and a half trillion at the peak. Uh, we, now we've since uh, gone uh, quite a bit above that. Um, as you point out in the book, uh, in 2008 and shortly after, the Fed be- uh, started paying interest on excess reserves, which was a new policy tool. Um, talk a little bit about the balance sheet there. And then, you know, there's kind of this argument about how the QE works, whether it's really just an asset swap of re- reserves for treasuries or whether it's something more akin to kind of debt monetization. Um, talk about those type of issues and how you saw that unfold over kind of the decade um, after 2008 leading up to now. Well, I'll start with the beginning of, of saying that I was as guilty as a lot of others, uh, monetary economists, very well-known ones, who were right. arguing that we were going to have a lot of inflation without recognizing the role that interest on. So I'd have to say, you know, Ben Bernanke was a monetary history guy, mm-hmm. was maybe the first real economist to be the chairman of the board. And it, in one sense was a brilliant way to deal with what might have uh, been a tremendous inflationary thing. What we did was to establish a new security that the banks would have, they would, uh, and reserves would somehow become a real asset. And so the net increase in Federal Reserve assets was really not that large because they also established a new liability that you'd have to subtract away from it that doesn't show up in their balance sheet. So mm-hmm. it's kind of interesting when you talk about balance sheet. The balance sheet you're really talking about is the, are the assets. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and liabilities are reserve. Reserves are liabilities. Uh, mm-hmm but they don't kind of show up in the assets. And one of the chapters I have in the book is about what is a central bank worth? How do you value a central bank? And how Mm -hmm. do you value the central, the Federal Reserve during this period, which I argue the Federal Reserve, uh, the way they did it, uh, substantially reduced what the value of the central bank really is. And And in another sense, the central bank, in the way ours is structured, and, and that's also true of the uh, of the ECB, the European Central Bank. It's owned by the treasuries of the countries. So that in one sense, since the treasury, U.S. Treasury, is the residual income recipient of the, of the Federal Reserve, they're like a common stockholder, except they're a non-voting shareholder. Right. So the member banks uh, that own stock in the Fed, they get, I think it's, what is it, like a 6 or 7% fixed dividend. Yeah. Um, and as you mentioned, the Treasury, they they actually remit, uh, or the sorry, the Fed remits all the interest back to the Treasury on those holdings. Is that right? Yeah, they had, uh, all of the net earnings. So we have the, the actually the banks that own shares in the Federal Reserve, they're like uh, preferred stock. They get a fixed return, and then and and, and you know companies have preferred stock, corporations uh-huh. and common stock. In a sense, the treasury is the common stockholder, except they don't get the vote. Whereas the common stockholders vote in the corporate world, and the preferred ones don't. <laughs> in this case, uh, the common stockholders don't get the vote, but they get all the residual income that the Federal Reserve has, and that's why buying for example, mortgage-backed securities is exactly the equivalent of buying treasuries from the perspective of the Fed, uh, of the treasury. Mm-hmm. So that when we're asking, what's the scale of the federal debt? If we want to ask that number, and you know, uh, the uh, we we have uh, the CBO always calculates what what's the the publicly held federal debt. Well, two things they don't do. They don't subtract what the Federal Reserve is holding from that, as far as they're concerned, because the Federal Reserve is not part of the government. It's publicly held. But in effect, of course, all the the assets they hold, the revenue goes back to the Treasury. And secondly, mortgage-backed securities are the, from the perspective of, again, the Treasury, because they get the revenue from them, they're the equivalent of the Federal Reserve buying treasuries. So you'd have to subtract both of those from 
when you try to calculate what is the federal debt. Now, I said that, but remembering again, excess reserves are federal debt in effect. They're because they reduced the revenue to the treasury. Right. And I'm, and I'm looking here. So in the book, you talk about uh, kind of guarding against certain unfavorable outcomes that you recommend the Fed starts to at least gradually reduce the size of the balance sheet, kind of get it back to a path of, of maybe, quote, unquote, what our parents' Federal Reserve looked like. Now, we had actually planned this podcast before uh, some of the re- more recent market dislocations, but I was just looking today, the Fed increased the balance sheet, it hit over uh, $5 trillion, and now today I'm seeing it's over $6 trillion. Okay. So, so in the book, you talk about having the Fed trying to slowly decrease the balance sheet and, and roll off some of these securities. Now, before when we had actually planned this podcast, it was before this uh, more, more recent crisis broke out. The balance sheet started kind of slowly rolling off. Um, Janet Yellen had talked about it being like watching paint dry and it wasn't going to be a problem. And then we started having some issues with the repo market. And then the Fed started injecting liquidity kind of on the short end of the curve. So buying these 30-day bills. And now we've gone full-fledged to the other side where they're buying all across the curve, even the longer dated maturities. And now more recently, they're actually buying ETFs, which are made up of uh, high-yield debt, aka junk bonds and, and corporate bonds. How are you looking at this, the current kind of injection of liquidity? And do you think they can ever shrink the balance sheet back to something more normalized? Well, I think I I'd want to start with that as to when they started to shrink it. Okay. which would have been October 2017. Right. Uh, and uh, they were shrinking it until really August of 2019. So they had reduced the, uh, the their assets uh, by uh, $650 billion during that period. During that period, uh, the excess reserves were falling. So as and excess reserves are falling faster than reductions in in Federal Reserve assets. So the net, what I would like to call the net high powered money was actually rising. So mm-hmm. the money stock was rising. So that that's the way, as I talk about in the book, that they have to do it mm-hmm. uh, now. And, and they were doing it. Now, what happened here may be well, well related to Dodd-Frank and are not quite understanding some of the terms of Dodd-Frank, and especially as to do with the financial assets that the banking system had to hold. So when when reserves of the banking system in about August of 2019 fell below the demand deposits of the banking system, within two months after that, the Federal Reserve started buying assets again. So they actually started buying assets uh, again in October 2019. So they stopped in August of 2019 from selling and they started buying again. And and perhaps the pressures of Dodd-Frank, now they've relaxed all that now. So all part of this stuff that's gone on since uh, March 1st or maybe the middle of February, whenever we want to say we're yeah. time this. Uh, first they relaxed all that Dodd-Frank stuff. And then, but they were buying uh, assets back again, and uh, they reversed what they were doing. And uh, my uh, idea about that, and my good friend Phil Graham's idea about it, is that this had really to do with with Dodd Frank and our not quite understanding the restrictions that it was putting, it was imposing on the banking system. But the Federal Reserve certainly understood that. And they they were back to buying assets, of course. Uh, well, just after this, that little uh, blip that they had in Fed, in the Fed funds market. Uh, yeah. Right. And and what's your view on on the balance sheet? Do you think they can ever be able to shrink it now, or do you think that they're stuck with a lot of these assets that they've purchased that they might not be able to sell at? the price that they might want to clear the market at. And especially with some of this stuff they're buying right now, whether it's a junk bond ETFs or corporate debt ETFs, 
And then there's talk about maybe granting them the ability to buy equities. Um, if they, you know, so choose. Well, the uh, ECB has bought corporate stuff. So, uh, so that wouldn't surprise me that we're going to be able to do that. And it, and none of that really, all those things are things that the Federal Reserve, going back to 2008 a minute, because uh, they did a number of these things in 2008. Remember, they rescued AIG. Uh, they bought AIG stock. I call that, I think that's an equity, isn't it? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, right. They actually bought stock. They That was held, I think, by Maiden Lane 3, maybe. Maiden Lane 2, one of them. They lent money to AIG. They yeah. went... Uh, because the uh, mutual fund people were uh, having difficulty because everyone wanted cash and they couldn't, they, and I don't know if you had, but I, I remember getting a thing from one of my mutual funds telling me that if I wanted to take out more than $50,000, I had to wait 30 days. Yeah. And so what was happening is the commercial paper market disappeared. Mm-hmm. What, what happened? The Federal Reserve bought they made the commercial paper market. They went in at one point, they had almost $400 billion worth of commercial paper. Now they made a lot of money on that because the commercial paper was perfectly good paper. The issue was that when everybody tries to sell it, the market disappears, right? There was nothing wrong with the asset itself. And so the, the federal reserve stepped in and did that. They also stepped in and made lots of loans to brokerage firms, very significant amounts of that. Then, of course, you had the toxic asset stuff that the federal that the Treasury was involved in. You had the buyout of General Motors. You had, you know, this. What we're doing now is not that dissimilar to what happened in two thousand and eight. The difference, though, is that the economy wasn't shut down in two thousand and eight. In the what we're doing, the cause of this one is different. Now they are going back into the commercial paper market again. They just they announced that early this week. Uh, what they're also going to be doing uh, is trying to support not mortgage-backed securities, but loan-backed because without a lot of people don't realize that the number of securities that are out there that are backed by other kinds of debt exceed the whole mortgage-backed security market. Right. All, all the auto loans, all the consumer loans, those things are all bundled together into securities that are based on them. Now, they're establishing, and the Treasury is going to have an equity position in that, and that's going to start now, and they're going to actually go into that market, which is very similar to the mortgage-backed security market. Uh, so it, it looks like we're doing that again. And we did that all again back in 2008. So it really is not that different than 2008. Right. And what's your view on the the Fed funds rate of how they kept the rate so low for so long, even after the crisis had kind of passed, going back to maybe around like 2012, 13. Some people say that we actually had a recession in the United States and 2016, 2015, 16, but it wasn't recorded as one. But do you think that them keeping the policy rate so low for so long contributed to um, kind of negative effects, mainly people who own assets becoming wealthier and this kind of wealth gap? Or do you think that's maybe overstated? Well, my my view is one and Hopefully, I've said this many times and published things about it. The Federal Reserve has really no control over market interest rates. Uh-huh. The Fed funds market, I have a chapter about it in the book. The Fed funds market is minuscule. Mm-hmm. It's right now $80 billion, the whole mm-hmm. market. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and it, while it used to be, not, not certainly before 2008, uh, uh, it was at least a way that you could tell what the Federal Reserve was going to do. Not that they control that market or, or any interest rate market for that matter. Uh, mm-hmm. And if we look now what they do, if I, could, if I had, a, we had a little graph up here, we could look at what's uh, get, go to the uh, begin at the end of the, the QEs, which would be the end of 2014. 
Uh, and now this later look, look at market interest rates in the Federal Reserve, interest on reserves, and their Fed funds target. Uh, and what you can see there is they simply follow the market mm-hmm. with a lag. They follow the market with a lag. And the, and the last time they made a mistake, the market was already falling in, in December uh, 2019, and they raised their rates. <laughs> but it turned out the market was already falling below them and fell below them consistently, very rapidly. The market fell rapidly. The Federal Reserve adjusted to it very slowly uh, throughout 2019. So they adjusted very slowly to that. But if you just put up a long graph, you can see they they just have to accept interest rates, the market. And they have to respond to that market, however, because as we know, this relationship between what banks do with their reserves has a lot to do with what reserves are earning relative to what the market is paying. Right, right. And what about the argument that the Fed can control not just the short end of the curve, but the longer end, Um, these, you know, very long maturities like the 10-year, 30-year note, sorry, treasury bond, as far as being able to do what they called yield curve curve targeting and being able to maybe pin down that long end. do you think there's any merit to that, or, or as you just talked about, maybe they don't have as much control? Well, they certainly don't. Have, they can't. Pin, they can't pin down anything. But what they, <laughs> okay. can, but what they can do is they can go in to the long market and start buying and, and start buying and buy a lot of it because they'd have to buy a lot of it. Remember, it's a big market. If yeah. you buy enough of it, what happens? Well, the prices of those long bonds would rise. And what does that imply about interest rates? And then the yields would come down. The yield, right? would come, the yield would come down. So if they wanted long yields, they can buy a huge amount of longs. Now, the problem that they have is that all these things have are substitutes for one another. And mm-hmm. so there's no reason why if they were to make long rates very low, corporations might start issuing long bonds because it would be a good deal. And and corporate long bonds and treasury long bonds are related to one another. Financial people who invest in financial markets have mm-hmm. some idea about how that relative thing should be. And so you've got we have that problem. And uh, of course, they don't hold they, they hold a lot of longs. Now they're all they're all buying shorts, as you know, as you, you've seen what they're doing. But uh, uh, but still, they're. In that sense, they can go and buy a huge amount of securities and raise the price. But they're doing all this long. Uh, before they started doing it, these interest rates were falling dramatically anyway. They're, uh, it's astounding, right. astounding what's happened and how much they've lagged the market. And the scary part of it was <laughs> is they lagged the market enough, the banks are going to say, well, we're just going to invest in reserves and pull our money out of the market. And that's not going to be good. And that's the whole thing that I write about in the book of how do you get back to your father's or grandfather's Federal Reserve where you have to manage. And now the Federal Reserve is in a position. And I just wrote a piece about this called Money and Banking when when reserves pay interest. Uh, And the banks are now on an equal footing with the Federal Reserve in determining what monetary policy is. Mm -hmm. And if if the market rates fall and the Federal Reserve doesn't respond, what's going to happen is that the money supply is going to fall because the banks are going to contract outside investments and add reserves. And so the Federal Reserve has got it's a much tougher job than it was before. They've got to watch the market and they have to behave properly against the market. But luckily, in some sense, the impact of these things recurs with a lag. And so you don't have to worry about next week, but you certainly have to worry about six months from now and you have to respond appropriately and they have to be very careful in what they're doing with the interest on reserves. And, and of course now, uh, currently, uh, all of these interest rates are about above the interest rate on reserves. Uh, Mm-hmm. Uh, it's yeah, pretty we saw, the, uh, we saw the 10-year treasury fall to something like 30 basis points intraday. 
We saw all-time lows on yields across the curve, um, even dipping into negative territory for the ver- very uh, short maturity stuff. But that also happened in 2008. Yep. So when you look at yields around the world, a lot of we had almost 17 trillion of negative yielding sovereign debt. I know that's come down a lot, maybe in the 10 to 12 trillion range. But the Fed has said that they don't want to, and Chairman Powell said they don't want to take rates, the policy rate negative here in the U.S. Um, What's the outlook as you talk, as you're speaking about things, it sounds very deflationary. Is there Uh, any, or or, yeah, sorry, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Go go ahead. But yeah, what what in the theme, central theme on this podcast is this kind of push and pull of inflation and deflation. So we have demographics pulling down rates, we have technology, and people cite all these forces of why we have kind of deflation or falling prices. But there's been a lot of talk now that there could be this paradigm shift into a more inflationary environment, especially with MMT and some of these initiatives we're, we're getting where we literally just send people a check. Um, and what what's your view on, on that? Well, there's no doubt that, uh, uh, well, one of the bases of MST, MMT might be that a dollar is always worth a dollar. And as I yeah. like to tell people when they say that, I said, well, you know, in Venezuela, a bolivar is always worth a bolivar. Yeah. Now, let me tell you what a bolivar will buy now versus what it did a decade ago. Right. You would say, well, I, we it's not the same boulevard. So I think that that argument is silly. And the other thing is the federal, there is no such thing as the bank rate because the Federal Reserve, in order for that to be true, the Federal Reserve would have to say, we are going to buy all the 10 year securities you will sell us at whatever rate and some rate and, and, and corporations, everyone would sell them to the Federal Reserve until we had huge amounts of inflation if they were to do. And then they would be setting because the only way you can fix a price is to agree to supply as much as any and people would be willing to buy at that price or buy as much from them as they're willing to sell at that price. And that's the only way you can fix a price. So that's the only way the Federal Reserve can actually fix an interest rate. Can't do it any other way. Uh, we can pretend we can do that. But we can't do it. Uh, we, we cannot do that. So we are, we're at a, a, a situation where we're not trying to do that. But what we are trying to do uh, is to take this shutdown economy and to do temporary things, like just as we did in 2008. Now, the scale of these are different uh, because this deficit is going to be staggering. Now, right and right and um, when Paul Volcker had to raise rates and bring out that the hammer and all that, um, the debt to GDP was much lower at that point. And now there's been some talk about concerns where if inflation on the long end started to creep up, and obviously it's it's very low, right? Somewhere under two percent, and they're trying to hit that target. I believe it printed. It's been printing a little bit higher than that now. But let's say it really were to were to go up into um, maybe not the double digits that we saw at the peak in 1985. I think it was at 17, 18 percent. But let's say they were to maybe normalize to the ten-year Treasury somewhere around like you know five, six percent. If if they were to raise rates to combat some type of inflation, then some argue that the debt would spiral out of control and the interest on the, the debt would, would go so high. Do you think there's any merit to that? And how do you look at that situation? Well, first, I'm, I'm coming back to the Federal Reserve can't raise rates. Now, mm-hmm. what they can do, and you could argue, both Volcker came in at a time and actually rates fell. Because mm-hmm. when he came in, that's when uh, the, the uh, T-bills were uh, at 18%. Mm-hmm. All right. And later on, they were lower. So you would have said he came in at lower rates. But what they did do was lower the rate of growth of the money supply. Uh-huh. That's what they did. That's what they did. And they weren't, they weren't raising rates because rates were falling. Mm-hmm. So we that this whole idea that we that we set a bank rate and we're willing to buy and sell all the bonds that, are, that would be issued at that rate. Nobody does that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is not how this. Now, one thing that comes with negative rate, 
with rates uh, is that the uh, the developing world where people are uh, were before all this virus thing, uh, we're seeing huge amounts of, of new freedom and and assets growing, and they have very high saving rates. Now, if you're in a country where you don't trust your government, what do you do with your money? Right. You have to send it somewhere else. You're going to, but, and what's the safest thing you can do? You can put it in the sovereign debt of Germany or Switzerland and mm-hmm. say, and I'm willing, if you're willing to guarantee that 10 years from now, I'll have this many euros or Swiss francs. I'm willing to pay you 10% like I would if you were holding gold for me and I'm paying you to store it. And that, yeah. that is, that's a huge thing that's going on right now in those countries, even China, where you don't trust your government. And if you don't trust the government, and these people are mighty, mighty wealthy, you can buy real assets in the U.S. We know that's gone on a lot because that, that's the reason why we had the negative trade balance because people were investing in the United States. It's the safest country in the world to invest in. Are your property rights are more secure here than anywhere else in the world? So that's why we, that's why that happened to us. But uh, the, part of this negative interest rates are, are that group of people. We don't know how all this virus thing is going to affect all of that. We'll see what's going to happen. But you're getting to safety, moving to cash or moving to uh, assets in countries that have low inflation mm-hmm. uh, is a safe thing to do. And if you're going to move there, it's going to make the, those securities rise in price and those interest rates are going to fall. Right. And going back to how you m- t- mentioned that the Fed can't control the interest rate or pin the rate at what the exact rate they want. Obviously, they're using open market operations to influence the short end of the curve uh, or the Fed funds rate and buying and selling treasuries and and other assets. Is Now, as you mentioned, though, they have unlimited firepower to do that. So where's the nuance there as far as um, them controlling the rate versus the market setting the rate? Well, <laughs> well the market sets the rates, but... Uh, if if they if one they're flooding the market with liquidity right now that that's one thing that's going on uh, and and that issue if uh, if they don't find some way for those to not enter the market system yeah we're going to have significant inflation and 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 how are they going to stop that and. What we did it before was paying interest on reserves and paying. And for the first all for all the QEs, the interest rate on reserves was above market interest rates. Right. Yeah. And then that and then that basically gave the incentive for the banks to keep those reserves instead of lending them out or, oh, yeah. or having them get into the economy, right? Exactly. The share of bank assets that were reserves rose significantly during that period. And once the uh, once the period ended, then they started falling a little bit, and depending on what was happening to market rates. And then when the Federal Reserve started selling assets, what they wanted they wanted the banks to reduce reserves even faster, so that there wouldn't be a negative effect on the economy. And and that's what was happening. Now uh, I think one of these, as I pointed out before, one of these issues is a lot of people didn't realize the extent to which Dodd-Frank was going to limit the amount that could happen once reserves fell below the level of the, the bank's liabilities, which would have been demand deposits. And mm-hmm. that uh, the Federal Reserve understood that, certainly, and they responded to it. But uh, it looks like we might not have understood it completely. Right. And so the when you look at the balance sheet right now, it's over six trillion. It was it hit over five and then right away it hit over six within about a week um, when you pull up Fred. Um, and um, when you actually take a look now at the some of the information coming out of economic circles and uh, other discussions, 
distinguished professors like yourself, is there communication right now going on as far as looking at those policies to make sure some of those policies are replicated again to make sure these the uh, this doesn't go out into the money supply as far as having a bigger effect on inflation like a lot of people thought it it would well, uh, for this we, next cycle? Yeah, what we probably have is we don't – Yeah, this is such a short – in the last three weeks, the Federal Reserve has bought a trillion dollars worth of treasuries, a right. trillion dollars worth of treasuries in three weeks. Now, uh, we, we've got this huge demand for liquidity. They're trying yeah. to support all the firms, and, I, and that's part of this. And so, the money markets, too, as you talked oh yeah, about, oh yeah. virtual paper, all the yeah. short-term paper. They're doing that, too. And I think it's hard for us. If this were to continue for the, the rest of this year, then we would have a serious problem of how we were ever going to get uh, – make. Uh, when the economy starts to expand again, all of this is going to be add to uh, the inflation. So we would, what we're going to do about it, I don't know. We've got the mechanism is there to do it. We, the one thing the Federal Reserve now actually can control is the interest it pays on reserves completely, mm-hmm. and so they now can do this and they can stop the bad effects of this when when it comes up. But when the economy's not doing anything. They don't have to worry about the banks lending a bunch of money. Nobody wants to borrow any right now. Mm-hmm. And what's the interest that they're paying right now on the reserves? And is there a way to find that out one, oh, yeah. in, oh, yeah. in real time? Yeah, okay. one-tenth one of one percent. That's their interest rate on reserves right now, one-tenth of one percent. Every treasury rate right now is above the interest rate on reserves. I see, which is which is good, obviously, and what's your outlook for that? Like, if you were to be advising them, what, what, what would you advise right now going forward in order to manage this whole catastrophe that's going on? <laughs> well, yeah, the problem is when, when are we going to put the economy back in action? If we knew yeah. that, uh, but I think this was going to be, they're not going to continue to buy at the rate they're buying. They're looking at these financial markets and trying to make sure that they don't implode. And they can undo this very easily uh, and will undo it uh, as those markets start to stabilize. But uh, until the economy starts going again, uh, this huge demand for liquidity is going to stay there. And that's what they're trying to. And and it's not going to cause any inflation. That's for sure. You can't unless it's the toilet paper inflation or something. But. Beyond beyond the silliness of that kind of thing, uh, in the short term, uh, monetary policy happens with a lag. Yeah, and I think we like we've established already that the quantitative easing and some of these policies did not contribute to inflation, at least in kind of CPI or consumer price inflation. Um, You know, we've seen asset prices. Go, move up, but when you move over to the fiscal side, and when you look at fiscal policy, do you think that fiscal policy could and will contribute to inflation, such as infrastructure spending, even some of the MMT, where we're just you know, give, writing people checks or UBI? Sometimes they call it a universal basic income. Do you think that the and it's been long talk of, talked about in economic circles that fiscal policy must kick in soon because the Fed cannot manage everything on their own. Uh, where, what's your view on that? Well, I, in one sense, if you want to say fiscal policy, where the, the Fed presumably doesn't have, they can't send everybody a check, but the Treasury can. Right. But remember, again, the Treasury <laughs> and the Federal Reserve are intimately connected. So right. in that, sense, uh, that doesn't mean anything. What, what uh-huh. has to happen here is that how are we going to fund what the Treasury is doing? Where are they going to get the money? Now, they can go into the market and borrow the money or they or the Federal Reserve can buy the trillion dollars worth of new debt that they have to issue to do their trillion dollars. And they just bought a trillion dollars worth. So in that sense, uh, the Federal Reserve yeah. is funding it by printing money. And yeah. Other- and what- 
Yeah. Yeah. And what do you say to people who say, well, this really is something like debt monetization because the treasury is just going to issue whatever they want and then the Fed will just go in and buy it? If, well, if they do that and if we can't convince the banks to hold it all, which is what we did last time, and maybe even with legislation with Dodd-Frank so that it couldn't go down, uh, but they've eliminated all of that at the moment, uh, then we will have significant inflation. But we don't have to have right. because the Federal Reserve controls the interest rate on reserves. They can fix it so the banking system will hold a lot of this stuff. But the real cost of servicing the debt, the net interest cost, as a share of GDP is then going to be get way beyond what it's ever been in our history. And I think that is a problem because that implies taxation. And an increase in taxation is going to cause, might cause recession. So we've got some real issues here that we have to resolve. But it's you can't resolve them in a, a two or three month crisis. That's our, that's the issue. Yeah, and I think when people look at the debt to GDP, I think it's around 120 percent. I'm not sure exactly, but some people uh, point to Japan and say, "Okay, theirs is well over 200, I think, or just over 200 percent debt to GDP." And they embarked on their QE program. I think it was around 2001, some somewhere in there. And so they, they point to Japan and say okay, we can have a lot more easing to go and a lot more expansion of the balance sheet. Now, there's some differences in economies and preferences and uh, things like that. When you look at their equity markets, they peaked in 89.90, never recovered since then. And there's, there's kind of some structural issues there. But do you think that that's a comparison that people can look at and say, well, we could still have a huge ex- uh, expansion of the balance sheet and the, and the debt even compared to GDP? Well, that might not be the best situation, but well, it's, Japan is a special kind of a case. One, of course, yeah. it's a it, it's other than Italy, it's the oldest economy in the world, oldest in terms of the demographics of it. Uh, yeah. Secondly, the Asians have huge saving rate; they much bigger than ours. And where else are they going to invest? In uh, and of course, in Japan because of this aging population, has huge foreign investments. I mean, they have invested greatly abroad. Uh, and I think that that, uh, that affects what their, uh, their debt interest rates might be. But, you know, you have some issues, as a, especially with Japan, is a different kind of a case. Of, and, of course, you could talk about Switzerland, where they have had negative interest rates for some time. Uh, and I think we have those issues. Right. And I think lastly, let's explore anything you'd like to say about your predictions or things you would like to see happen going forward. Now that we're, we're recording here on April, Friday, April 10th. And like you talked about, the Fed has already bought up a trillion just in the last few weeks. And, um, you know, what's your kind of outlook or any last things you'd like to add here? Well, I have to say that I guess if you, when we started this, we said, what if, we, what if it was 2008 and we were having the same conversation and we we're looking at the Federal Reserve was going to do? Yeah. I would have been, I would have been very pessimistic about how this was going to work uh, once we got over the liquidity crisis, because mm-hmm. the way you dealt with that was appropriate, but a lot of things I felt at the time they did was not, and we were going to have long run problems. As it turned out, I was wrong in the way I thought about what they were going to, how they were going to handle it. And so if I look at where we are now, I am hoping that we will be able to get by this uh, with a, with what the Federal Reserve is doing. And they will be able to at least get the interest rate on reserves back where it belongs. And so that we will not have a, a significant inflation. And when the economy gets going again, we can undo a lot of this. Now, that's a question where it's going to remains to be seen, especially. Uh, but in the past, we undid all the commercial paper stuff we did. We undid uh, uh, we didn't undo the mortgage backed securities, but there's nothing wrong with with those. They're the same as any other kind of asset. Now, whether we're going to buy uh, junk bonds or not, but there's nothing wrong with buying. If junk bonds are yielding, well, they might 
because of the current liquidity crisis, but you want to say, yeah, let's go ahead and invest in them. We've got the money. The public's afraid of them. We're not afraid of them. We know the economy's going to come back. We'll do what we did with AIG. We'll make a ton of money. Mm -hmm. And that's what they did. That's what they did. Right. Right. That makes sense. Well, Thomas, this has been great. Uh, We really appreciate your insights. And we're going to link in the show notes here to your book so people can go out and pick up a copy, The Century of Federal Reserve Monetary Policy Issues and Implications for the Future. And um, we'll we'll link a couple of your other articles here so people can check those out and uh, find more of your work and encourage people to go, uh, go buy the book. All right. Well, thank you. Good. (laughs) Thank you, Thomas. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can also support the show for as little as a dollar a month through our Anchor website. Just go to www.jellydonutpodcast.com. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter, at JellyDonutPod, or you can contact us via email at JellyDonutPodcast at ProtonMail.com. As a reminder... All opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and do not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or advice.